does scientific publishing work? What is the process of writing a journal article? What is peer review? This is Under the Cortex. I am Özge Gürcanlı Fischerbaum with the Association for Psychological Science. Today, we are taking you to the kitchen of scientific publishing to tell you more about what happens behind the scenes at APS to publish rigorous scientific content. I'm extremely lucky to have with me Dr. Smin Wazir from University of Melbourne. In addition to a long list of affiliations, Dr. Wazir is the incoming editor-in-chief of APS's journal Psychological Science. Smin, thank you for joining me today. Welcome to Under the Cortex. Thanks, I'm happy to be here. So you are the incoming editor-in-chief of uh, APS's academic journal, Psychological Science. It is very exciting for us. Before I ask you more questions about your new role at APS, please tell our audience how you became a psychological researcher. Sure. Well, I think it started quite early for me. I found this uh, note that I had written my best friend in 10th grade, so I was about 14 or so. And in it, I wrote to her, no, sorry, she wrote this to me. She said, uh, Miriam's party, I got the idea that you wanted an honest evaluation from me about you. I think you're very good at understanding people, but sometimes a little too harsh in your judgment. You are very athletic, a good leader, and you take the initiative to do something, blah, blah, blah. Um, you're trustworthy and honest. If I had to rate your personality on a one to 10 scale, 10 being best, you would be a nine. Obviously she's very biased, but apparently I was asking people to rate my personality when I was in high school. So I guess it started a long time ago. Um, and then I, at university, I majored in psychology and minored in uh, women's studies now called gender studies. But really I would say kind of the beginning of my psychology research career was um, graduate school at University of Texas at Austin, where Sam Gosling was my advisor and kind of my first big, important mentor and really shaped a lot of my values in, in science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that anecdote is lovely. Uh, I know that you have a diverse set of research interests. And one of the things you study is self-knowledge, yeah. whether people <laughs> uh, know things about themselves. How did you get interested in this topic? Like, was it this... Um, incident that happened when you were 14? And also, how does one study self-knowledge? Yeah, I mean, I think that I probably was interested in it before this incident. I'm guessing that I was just an annoying person who was always kind of talking about how people are different and how people see each other and stuff like that. I mean, probably what a lot of teenagers right, are thinking about, but even as adults, I think that it's a, just a fascinating topic independent of like academia. Um, but I think that for me, it was both, yeah, just the inherent interest. We can call it theoretical if we want to be very intellectual about it. I think it is a deep, you know, philosophical question about how well people know themselves. But what I liked about it is that it also has clear practical implications and is a kind of a methodological question about what's the best way to measure what someone is like, their personality, or even their mood or other states. So it was always an interest to me. I mean, I started my research in, in personality and kind of behavioral manifestations of personality. And so one of the decisions we had to make in our research with my advisor, Sam Gosling, was how we would define the like gold standard, the, the ground truth about what a person is like. And in my very first paper, for reasons that were not really that deep or theoretical, we ended up using peer reports, like our participants' friends' ratings of them as our kind of ground truth measure of personality, partly because we were using the self-reports for something else, but we also felt like that was justifiable, that those are just as valid probably as self-reports for a number of reasons. 
But we got a reviewer saying, surely the best measure of a person's personality is their self-report. Otherwise, the whole field of personality assessment seriously needs to rethink itself. And they were taking issue with us measuring personality with peer reports. And I thought, oh, that's fascinating. Like, I mean, I think it's interesting how people respond to reviewer reports. For me, it just kind of lit a fire under me. And I thought, well, that's an empirical question. Do we know that self-reports are obviously the best measure for all traits and all kinds of populations and regardless of who else we could get reports from? That seems implausible to me. So I wanted to start studying like when are self-reports better and when can we get equally good or maybe even better ratings from other people who know the person well. Your friend Miriam, who was giving you that sentence. <laughs> yeah, it was my friend Geraldine who was tell yeah talking about Miriam's party. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, was funny. Right. I mean, obviously, I think that actually shows one of the big limitations of friend reports is that they can be extremely overly positive or biased. Um, but actually, some other kinds of informants are worse than friends. So, like parents or romantic partners, you know, parents are almost useless as informants of their at least of their like college age kids. They're just way too positive. There's no not much valid information in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you have been doing this research for a while, I know. But uh, one thing maybe people don't know about you, in addition to your research, you are a champion of service in the academic community. Can you tell us a little bit about what type of service roles you have engaged with since you started your academic career? Yeah. I mean, I think that probably I just do more visible service than some other people. So I do a lot of service to the field and to the kind of organizations at the field level. Instead, I have, you know, I have colleagues who do lots and lots of service to the university um, or to the community, honestly, and that those are less likely to be visible and recognized, I think, by the field. So I've been lucky that the kind of service that I enjoy doing and that I've had the opportunity to do are ones that are recognized more, I think, than other kinds. But yeah, so most, most of my service has been a lot of journal editing, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. Um, I've gotten to sit on boards or committees like the board of APS, um, boards of other societies or of the publisher PLOS. Um, I've gotten to help organize conferences um, in social and personality psychology and in now in meta research kind of societies. Um, I got to sit on the social psych panel of the National Science Foundation in the U.S. for three years. And I was on a National Academy of Sciences study committee on replicability and reproducibility in science. Those were all really fascinating experiences, kind of giving me a different window into the scientific world and ecosystem. And then I co-founded with Brian Nozick the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science and sat on the board for that for a while and helped kind of start it up. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned this a little bit, you were reviewing uh, people's work. So peer review is a type of service in academia. And you have done this in the past, like many academic researchers. In addition, you have studied it. So could you tell our audience what peer review is and why is it important for the scientific community? Yeah. So like peer review is mostly uh, refers to peer review at journals. So that's you know, kind of before an article is published, although that's changing these days with preprints. But typically or traditionally, it would be, you know, authors submit a manuscript to a journal, the journal oversees and coordinates the peer review, so sends it to reviewers, or sometimes evaluates it without reviewer input and rejects it before um, external review, or yeah, then sends it out to reviewers and then makes a decision or, or asks for revisions. Um, if you think of kind of the life cycle of a scientific claim from when it's born to let's like 
way oversimplify and say when it becomes an established fact. And so at the beginning, there's like a huge fire hose of scientific claims being made, and we need some way to filter them and to decide which ones are going to keep going on the road to becoming an established fact. So journal-based peer review is kind of that first filter or one of the early filters, um, but we need more than that. There's really a lot of role in the scientific community for more scrutiny, more review, more poking and prodding at, at findings before they would get to something like a textbook claim or a really established fact. But another reason that the journal part is crucial is that in principle, at least, it should give everyone an opportunity to get an evaluation of their work. So the journals help to make sure that every submission gets looked at, at least by one, usually two editors, if it's going to be disrejected or um, by a few reviewers, if it goes out for full review. Um, So that helps a little bit to level the playing field. I think that's one value of journal peer review. But I do think that as we have more preprints, so there's less of this bright line between pre-publication peer review and post-publication peer review, because a lot of submissions that go to journals are actually already published as preprints and may already even have gotten critiques and comments on the preprint. I think this really raises questions that we probably should have been asking all along about what it means for to have the like peer-reviewed label both because I think preprints could have been vetted quite carefully and because journal articles sometimes haven't been vetted carefully or they were vetted carefully, but we still missed something. And I think that the existence of preprints and also honestly of journals that are not very, um, don't have much integrity, like propaganda journals, or sometimes they're like special issues of journals where there's a lot of corruption and how things are handled. So that means that getting the badge or the label, the seal of like, this has been peer reviewed by a journal doesn't mean that much if we include all journals, right? So then it starts to become important, well, which journal? And is it a legitimate journal? And how good is its peer review process? And I think the fact that those questions are coming up is actually a really good thing, because it'll mean that we can get a better handle on how do we know if a journal has a really rigorous peer review process that passing through that process should mean something, um, because it's not the case that we can just treat any journal peer review as like a really strong signal that the work has been vetted carefully. So I think there's going to be more and more pressure on journals to be more accountable and transparent about what makes them, their process kind of a, a valid signal that there's been at least some quality control, some attention to rigor and so on. Yeah, I like what you say. It is kind of like a good shortcut, but just like any shortcut, sometimes there is noise. Sometimes people use it uh, not for what it means. They sometimes use it for uh, propaganda. So I think, yeah, excellent point. That's why it is important to know what journal we are talking about, what institutions those journals uh, belong to. Yeah, excellent summary of this overall discussion we are constantly having uh, in the academia. So you also do research about peer peer review, right? So what are your main findings? Uh, So I'm going to summarize not just my own findings, because I've only done a tiny bit of the research on peer review, but there's a whole field now, emerging field of meta research or meta science that just does kind of the science of scientific practice, including journals and peer review. And I think that there's some really interesting findings out of this literature, and it's actually, I would say, most active in psychology, or psychology is at least one of the top kind of fields where people are doing this kind of research about our our published literature, our processes, our research practices, our journal practices. And some of the findings include some really exciting findings and promising findings. Like, for example, some practices are growing really fast, like transparency-related practices. You're seeing more and more Authors choose to post their data, their code, their materials, choosing to pre-register. 
um, registered reports are on the rise. You know, a lot of different transparency-related practices are going up quite a bit. There's also some research, including some of my own, showing that sample sizes are going up, which there was some meta-research in earlier decades that was quite depressing, showing after all these calls for more statistical power, more precision, that sample sizes were not changing. And then finally, probably because of, in part because of the access to internet samples, sample sizes are finally going up. So that's a good sign. Again, if we take it in isolation, it might also have some negative side effects, some trade-offs that are not ideal. So meta-researchers are also studying that. Like, sure, our sample sizes are going up, but does that mean we're doing, we're using more convenient samples, but not populations that we should be drawing from, or we're using methods that are easier to administer online, but not necessarily the methods that are best suited to the research question. So those are the kinds of questions we're still investigating in our research. Um, but there's also some findings from meta-research that are maybe less <laughs> rosy, I guess I would say. So some of the meta-research, for example, on replication rates and reproducibility rates um, suggests there's a lot of room for improvement. And I think there's really good debates to be had about what's an ideal replication rate. Maybe it's okay if there's stuff that fails to replicate I think what the lesson for me is in the all the research on replications is that it's fine to publish stuff that may be kind of uncertain at the time of publication, and some of that we should expect to not replicate. But I think we have to have better kind of truth in advertising. So when we publish things, it should be pretty clear to readers how confident and certain how definitive this finding is versus was it published more because it's exciting and, and groundbreaking, but not definitive. And that way we'll be less surprised or shocked about which things are likely to replicate or not. Um, and I think it would also help with policymakers and other kind of end users to interpret, you know, what does a, an acceptance in a prestigious journal mean? Was it accepted because we're totally confident in it and ready to start applying it in the real world? Or was it accepted because it's like the first to use this method or the first to make this discovery? And that really needs to be followed up before we um, apply it or generalize from it. And I think, you know, the replication work, I think, is a little bit more nuanced in terms of what it means uh, for the state of the field. The computational reproducibility work, which is not collecting new data, but reanalyzing the author's own data. And there have been a couple of groups like Sophia Cruel and her co-authors and Tom Hardwick and his co-authors who've looked at computational reproducibility rates, specifically in psych science, actually. There have been other projects looking at other journals, too, and showing that you know when authors do share their data, it's not always easy or even possible to reproduce the results in their own papers from their data, which is not surprising because you know data sharing is a relatively new thing. We haven't really developed strong norms and standards around what code we should share, how we should comment our code, et cetera. But I think that shows you know really great avenue for potential improvement. That that's an area where we could we could do better. We could develop better resources and training and norms around around those things. Um, there's also other areas I think where we could improve. So pre-registration is another, I think like practice that people are engaging in, but we're still kind of in the early stages of learning how to do it best. And so there's research, for example, by Olmo Vandenacker showing that, um, there's quite often deviations from pre-registrations that are not uh, reported as clearly as they could be. So I think that's something else we could improve. And then of course, in terms of like the diversity of our samples and the representativeness of our samples or the actually, I would say the appropriateness of the sample for the research question, I think there's still a lot of room for improvement there. We're often relying on convenience samples rather than trying to draw from the population that's most relevant or trying to draw from multiple different populations if we want to make more broad and generalizable claims. There's research showing that our measurement practices still have a lot of room for improvement. Um, and then in, in my own lab, we've done some research looking at things like 
how often do authors report limitations and what kinds of limitations do they report or how often do they make claims about the real world applicability of their research. Um, we've looked at how common are replication articles and other kinds of post-publication critiques of published work, finding that those are still quite rare, um, despite you know a lot of a lot of movement in that direction in terms of journal policies and attitudes towards replication, but it's still pretty rare for journals to publish those kinds of papers. We've looked at how often editors publish in their own journals. We haven't published that paper yet, but it's, we'll have it ready soon. Oh, that's an interesting one. Uh-huh. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, that's one that, you know, I became interested in actually partly from being an editor and having, well, one thing that was shocking to me when I became an editor was that um, it's pretty rare for people to declare conflicts of interest in psychology, for authors to declare conflicts of interest. And maybe that's because compared to like medicine, we don't often have like the more traditional kind of conflict of interest where we're partnering with industry or we're funded by a group that has a direct interest in our research. But we do have other kinds of conflicts of interest that we're not used to thinking about. And one is when editors publish, submit an article to the, re, the journal that they're an editor of, that's a clear potential conflict of interest to my mind. And we found that it's never disclosed. So we looked at a handful of journals over a handful of years. So just within our, our sample, I don't think we found a single instance of an editor disclosing that as a potential conflict of interest um, when they published in their own journal. So it's something I also thought about um, when I was on the board of APS, I pushed for a change that was implemented at APS journals where if an editor submits a paper to their own journal, it's actually handled by an editor outside of that journal, not by one of their co-editors on their team. Mm-hmm. How does one become an editor of a journal? You are very patient about this very clearly, and I'm sure the young academics out there would like to know about the steps. Yeah, I mean, I think that one step is to accept review requests for journals that you think highly of, that you would like to be more involved with. Um, So when those review requests come in, prioritize those over other review requests, maybe. Um, I'm sure there is research out there about the accessibility of these communities, etc. Would you recommend young researchers to contact the journals uh, to be reviewers themselves? Yeah, I think they could definitely contact editors and just say that they're interested in in reviewing opportunities. Um, They could also ask their kind of mentor, the mentors in their network, their supervisors or anyone else who might be in a good position, who might get review requests themselves and not always accept them. Those people could recommend them as a reviewer. So that's a very common way to get into the reviewer pool. But of course that also requires connections to people who themselves get review requests. Um, One of the things I'm planning to do when we kind of build up the editorial board, the new editorial board, so not the editors, but the people who are on the editorial board who are frequent reviewers, is to do an open call for nominations and really reach out to different groups that are underrepresented in the kind of journal system currently to try to get nominations of people who would make good reviewers who are interested in doing it. And so looking out, I don't know how many journals do these kinds of open calls, but looking out for those kinds of calls. Um, But yeah, I think even just a, a direct email to an editor of a journal that you would like to be involved with, I think that would be welcome. I mean, you may not get a response, but they may actually just still add you into the system. Um, Because it's so hard to find reviewers, I think there's a decent chance that that would work. I would mention some of your, like maybe link to a few of your relevant papers so that they could check out your work and make sure that the quality of your work matches, you know, the quality and nature of your work matches what they're looking for in reviewers. Um, But yeah, I I think that's one way. Mm-hmm. 
And um, you could have uh, chosen other journals, obviously. Why is our journal Psychological Science important to you? I think that it's just, you know, one of the most well-respected journals in the field. And I think that, you know, makes it such an important player in communicating psychological science within psychology to other neighboring fields, to the public, to policymakers, all of that. You know, it's one of the journals that people look to. And so I'm really excited to play a role and work with others to try to do as much as we can to keep improving the kind of quality and importance and trustworthiness. And also because it's so important within and outside of the field, it means that it plays a big role in people's careers. Getting an article accepted at Psychological Science can have an impact on people's chances of getting grants or jobs or awards and things like that. Um, and so, I mean, that, that puts a lot of responsibility on the editor. So it's not necessarily a reason to want the job. But I guess, you know, it's if you're going to be spending a lot of your time in this kind of service role anyway, it's nice for it to be in a position where your changes and your actions have a chance to kind of shape things for the better. Of course, that also means you have the responsibility to really think through those changes and those actions um, because they will have big impacts on people. So yeah, it's an opportunity for impact. And you mentioned like some of your goals briefly, but I will ask you, what are your goals for the upcoming year for psychological science? Like, should we expect any changes? What are you thinking of? Yeah, so I'm going to kind of follow in the footsteps of previous editors on a few things, like um, increasing transparency. So there have been kind of incremental changes over the last 10 years on that, and I'll keep going in that direction. So one thing we'll do that was already signaled by the, pre- the current editor-in-chief, Patricia Bauer, is moving to the level two of the transparency and openness promotion guidelines, which means requiring data and code and materials from all authors with exceptions um, in cases of ethical um, challenges, for example. Um, And also valuing different kinds of research and recognizing that there are many different ways for research to be high quality or important or strong, and that almost no research is going to be strong on all the dimensions. And so really appreciating that there can be different strengths. We should value different strengths. We shouldn't have a one-size-fits-all kind of expectation about what kind of paper we'll publish. And the important thing is that the research is presented in a calibrated and accurate way. So the strengths are you know, clear, but also the trade-offs or any limitations are also clear. So I want to kind of not just focus on transparency and really think about more holistically about the quality and, and accuracy and calibration of the research, which means not making exaggerated claims, not overselling the research, being really clear about the caveats and the kind of boundary conditions or, or uh, limitations. And that means that we as editors have to hold up our end of the bargain, which is to not punish authors for being honest and transparent about those limitations or those trade-offs and really reward the qualities without punishing authors for the kind of trade-offs they have to make sometimes to achieve those qualities sometimes in order to get something like a sample that's underrepresented in the literature, that means that you won't be able to get as large of a sample size. And so taking each paper on its own merits and really seeing the value of what's strong about it and rewarding authors who are honest and upfront about what's not strong about it or what what they didn't do, what they couldn't do with, with their design or their methods. Um, I also would like to try to think about what, what psych science can do to encourage more high quality post-publication critiques and corrections and things like that. And I know Patricia Bauer 
we did some stuff in that direction to introducing a new submission type. And I want to revisit that, see how well it's working and what, what we could do to kind of reward and recognize really good corrective and verification work that people are doing. And then I want to continue doing more to increase the equity of our practices, the fairness of our practices, and also the accessibility of the journal to researchers from many different, not just geographical regions, but also you know, different traditions in terms of methods and approaches, different um, languages, different, you know, there's a lot of different groups that our system as it currently is disadvantages. Um, so for example, people for whom English is a borrowed language, publishing in an English language journal is a lot more work than people who either have always worked in English or that's, they're very comfortable in that language. Um, and so I'm trying to think through what we could do. I mean, the problem is that journals kind of come into the picture pretty late in the research process. So I think journals maybe don't have as much of a role to play in providing resources in the early stages of the research process. But is there something we could do to help support researchers who, you know, maybe are writing in a borrowed language in English and need um, extra support in the writing stage? Maybe that's a, a place where journals do have a role to play. I'm, thinking through those things, but also kind of trying to demystify the whole journal and peer review process. And there's kind of a hidden curriculum of like things that happen behind the scenes that aren't explicitly talked about or aren't aren't printed in author guidelines. And so I'd like to hold office hours at different time zones and so on to try to make it more accessible for people to drop in and just ask questions, not about their specific paper, but about like how does how does this process work? Is it okay to email an editor if you haven't heard after so many months, or you know other kinds of questions like that that I get a lot informally at conferences and things like that? But I think there needs to be a more open, equitable, kind of accessible way to share that information. Mm-hmm. Well, Samin, thank you very much. These are this is like a very long list of changes, but every each of them is like very very important. Thank you very much for thinking about them. And also, thank you for joining to our podcast today. Thank you. I am personally looking forward to the changes in psychological science, and I'm looking forward to your leadership. This is Özge Gürcanlı Fischerbaum with APS, and I have been speaking to Dr. Smin Vazir from University of Melbourne. If you want to know more about this research, visit psychologicalscience.org. Are you tired of students being constantly distracted and overwhelmed? Macmillan Learning has the solution. Introducing Achieve for Psychology, a platform that provides you with the tools to keep students engaged and focused on your course. With exclusive author-created content, captivating videos, and self-evaluation surveys, Achieve ensures that students stay on track and feel comfortable reaching out for help. Don't just take our word for it, experience it. Take a tour of Achieve for Psychology at macmillanlearning.com slash under the cortex and see for yourself why it's setting the new standard for teaching and learning. Macmillan's Achieve for Psychology, engaging every student, supporting every instructor, setting the new standard for teaching and learning.